I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> there has been so much violence in the past few years in our country. And in this political season, we've heard such ugly rhetoric, especially targeting people because of their race or gender, their economic or immigration status. It's all deeply troubling. But the shooting a few months ago at Pulse nightclub struck particularly hard. And I know you and I were overcome with bone-deep sorrow. I was so sad at how cheaply we hold human life. As your pastor, I saw all of your faces during that time and my heart was broken imagining that even a single one of you might be afraid. It was broken that a single one of you might ever feel unworthy. And so I started signing my letter in our weekly e-news with this truth. Beloved, you are beautiful. I love you. And God adores you. Beloved, you are beautiful. I love you. And God adores you. It was a small thing, but it felt necessary. I felt I had to make clear somehow how beloved and precious every single one of you is. After a couple weeks, I started to feel a little bit weird about it, and I wondered if I should stop including it. I thought maybe some of you thought it was corny. Maybe some of you do. But a number of you have told me that that line touches you each week. How sometimes it causes tears to spring to your eyes and makes you catch your breath. And some of you have said that's because you're not sure that you're worthy of God's love. And I know what you mean. Although I'm absolutely certain that you are beautiful and beloved and adored by God, I'm not always sure about that for myself. That seems to be a human problem, doesn't it? It seems to be written into our DNA and it certainly is written into our story of God. Somehow we make God in our own image. Just as our culture tells us that we are only worthy of love if we are successful and physically perfect, we imagine that God has similar standards, examining us and finding us unworthy. We worry that we can never live up to God's expectations, imagining God as a judge who requires us to get everything right in exactly the right order, confess our sins, amend our lives, live better before we will be forgiven, acceptable, worthy to be loved. But that story that we tell ourselves, that story 
that we believe is true of how God works and of our own unworthiness makes it very hard to understand the story of Zacchaeus correctly. Our version of how God ought to work is this. We screw up, God judges. We repent, God forgives. We change our lives, God now approves of us. That's the lens that we bring to this story of Zacchaeus, chief tax collector, rich man, despised by his own community. After all, tax collectors were seen as traitors and cheats because they worked for the occupying Roman government and made money by adding charges to the taxes they collected. They gave the taxes to the Romans and then they lined their pockets with the extra and they would call in Herod's soldiers to shake down anyone who didn't pay up. And this story of the rich chief tax collector comes in the middle of the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel that focuses on the dangers of wealth. So far, Jesus has told us multiple parables about rich men. The rich man who builds storehouses to hold all his wealth. The rich man who ignored the sore-covered, poverty-stricken Lazarus at his gates. The rich man who has a dishonest manager. This is what we expect, right? After all, Jesus has come to bring good news to the poor and will send the rich away empty. Jesus told the rich man that he ought to sell all that he has, give it to the poor, and then follow him. We know it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. So clearly, this rich guy Zacchaeus is in trouble. He must be unjust, must oppress the poor. He must be a sinner who needs to repent in order to be forgiven, a sinner who must change his life if he wants to be beloved. But here's the thing. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He is the chief tax collector, a collaborator of sorts with the Romans. He comes up short both physically and morally. But nowhere in this encounter does Zacchaeus repent or Jesus forgive. Zacchaeus is so desperate to see Jesus that he climbs a tree and immediately Jesus sees him. And he calls him down, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus jumps out of the tree and joyfully welcomes Jesus. Zacchaeus, the sinner, the outcast, the reviled, the short man who is easily mocked by others, climbs into a tree to see Jesus and he ends up being seen by Jesus. And what does Jesus see? Well, he sees Zacchaeus, the tax collector, but he also sees Zacchaeus, son of Abraham. When people begin to grumble that once again Jesus is going to hang out with another sinner, Zacchaeus tells Jesus about his other side. He gives half of what he has to the poor, he says, if he has defrauded anyone, he pays them back fourfold. You see, Zacchaeus is much more complicated than his community gives him credit for. 
And to be honest, the translators of our Bible have been accomplices in this one-sided view of Zacchaeus. Probably because the notion that sinners must repent to be forgiven, do better with their lives if they want to be loved, that's so ingrained in us. It's so ingrained, in fact, that many Bible translators mistranslate this passage into the future tense. So that Zacchaeus says that he will give half of his wealth to the poor, that he will pay back those he's cheated fourfold, as if he will do these good things in the future now that he's met Jesus. That translation fits with our notion of a repentant sinner changing his life, transformed from sinful tax collector into generous benefactor. But that doesn't seem to be what's going on here. You see, the Greek verbs here are not in the future tense, but in the present. And while I don't like to get into the details of Greek from the pulpit very often, you should know that biblical translators had to make up a new category known as the present future tense for this passage, which occurs only here. In order to fit their theological assumptions, sinner meets Jesus, sinner repents, sinner is forgiven, changes his life, and is now beloved of God, translators had to create a new grammar. The truth is, we have a much more complicated story. One much more like, I don't know, our lives. A short tax collector whose livelihood, the very thing he does to make a living, means that he cannot be perfect. And he is also a son of Abraham trying to live well within the complicated situation of his life. Zacchaeus knows his scripture. He certainly knows the passage from Isaiah that we heard today. He knows that God insists that we are to care for the poor, to seek justice, that those things are more important than personal perfection or even perfect worship. Zacchaeus is doing the best that he can And Jesus is already accepting him, loving him, eager to spend time with him, even to be a guest in his home. Zacchaeus is not a saint. He is not perfect. But Jesus sees him, really sees him as he was created to be by God and as he is, beautiful. Beloved, adored by God. He doesn't have to do a thing to become beloved. That's just who he is. Because that's who God made him to be. He doesn't have to beg forgiveness. God has already forgiven. Once again, once again, our God is doing what we least expect, forgiving before we ask, loving us 
just as we are, including us, even when we feel like outsiders. I think that messes with our image of God. It doesn't fit with our notion of justice. It makes us uncomfortable because that's not how the world works, right? And even if you think it works that way for others, I bet you think it doesn't work that way for you. But that is how our God works. So, no matter how hard it is to believe, no matter who you are and what you're up to, no matter how you've succeeded, no matter how you failed, believe this. Beloved, you are beautiful. I love you. And God adores you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.